been camping out in one passage of Scripture in 1 John chapter 4. I hope this has been edifying to you these last four weeks. I know it's been edifying to me, and I'm really excited about um, what God has done and the stories I've heard as we prepared for the Christmas season, and I hope he continues to do that in your heart as well through this time in God's Word. Uh, when I was in the Air Force, uh, they sent us over to Saudi Arabia for Desert Shield, and one of the first things they gave us right when we stepped off the plane was this card. And I got a slide of this card, a picture of it up for you. This is what it says, and this is a get-out-of-jail-free card, basically. So in Saudi Arabia, there's a lot of different, not only do they have civil laws, they have a lot of Shia religious laws, and it's foreigners coming in don't always know those laws. So you could break a Shia law simply by sitting and exposing the bottom of your foot or something like that. So if the religious police there see you do this, they will arrest you and they will say, you broke this law. And so we were told if that ever happens to you, keep this card on you at all times, pull this card out and give it to them. And in Arabic, it says something like, this lost child is from the United States of America and he, does, he or she has no idea what they're doing. Please call this number and we will take care of the whole thing. And so that's basically what it says. There's the other side of it. But if you flip to the, uh, the front side, again in Arabic, I remember when I first got back, I showed this to um, a friend of mine and his son looked at it and he said, what does it say? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, what does it mean? I said, I have no idea. All I know is it works. I saw it and it works. And I think sometimes when we talk about the love of God, we have that same reaction. What is the love of God? I don't know if we really know. How does it really work? I don't know. I just know it does. And so we have kind of this default, but we haven't really given a lot of thought to what is the love of God and what does it really mean. And today in our passage, the Apostle John gets really, really practical. And he says, I want you to know what the love of God is, and I want you to know how it is operating in your life. And so today we're going to look at the fact that he talks about how do we know we have the love of God. And then he's going to say, and if you do have the love of God, here are two things that will follow suit, giving evidence to that. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open to 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. Some of the uh, sanctuary Bibles have been removed for us to prepare for our Christmas Eve service. So um, in light of that, we are going to be putting some of these passages on the screen that I'll be talking through. But if any of you know me at all, you know that that totally cramps my style. Uh, I am not into putting lots of Bible passages on the screen. I don't mind doing it for uh, a passage or two or a story or a quote, but when it comes to the exact text that we're looking at, I prefer us to open up First of all, our own Bibles. If you, we really encourage you here, if you're part of Crossview Church, to bring a Bible every Sunday, whether it's on phone or whether it's a paper Bible. It's a good uh, time Sunday here to say, please bring your Bibles because it will help you. But then I'm also more into us opening up a paper Bible here in the sanctuary to learn from. And the reason why is there's actually people who do statistics and research on this thing, if you can believe that sort of thing. And statistically, if you bring your own Bible or if you actually open it versus it just being flashed on the screen before you, there's a better chance of it getting inside of you and you retaining it. And I want us at Crossview Church to be people that aren't just surrounded with the Bible around us, but are people who have the Bible within us. And so this is kind of one of those hills I'm willing to die on. And so uh, if you like the uh, passage on the screen, um, don't bother emailing me saying, that was awesome, we should do that every Sunday, because we're not. 
all right? Um, Merry Christmas. You get a gift today. Enjoy it to the fullest, but we are sticking with what we normally do, all right? So um, if you do have a Bible, open it up. The way to get to 1 John is you start in the back and you go past Revelation and Jude and then 2nd, 3rd John and 1st John. And so we're going to focus on verses 16 to 21. And as I said, what we're going to see here is that John wants the Christian, the person following Jesus, to understand how love operates in their life. And he's going to talk about how do we know we have it and then how do we live that out. So first of all, how do we understand God's love in our life? Let's look at verses 16 and 17. It says, God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us. The way God wants his followers to mature in love is a process where we have communion with him. It says, if we remain in God and he remains in us, then we will grow and his love is made complete in us. John is getting really practical here, and he's saying the way love is made complete in you is through communion. And so I want to look at these two words, communion and complete. And so the first one I want to look at is communion. Let's dive in and look at communion. Communion with God. Communion means to be with, to spend time with, to share time with God. John Piper defines it this way. He says, communion refers to God's communication and presentation of himself together with our proper response of joy in him. God's communication and representation of himself to us and our proper response of joy to him. It involves God coming to us and revealing his love to us and us receiving that love and letting that explode within joy within our hearts. Human beings are meant to be in communion with God. That's how we were created. We were created to be in communion with God, and our hearts long for that communion with God. And what happens is we go through the world, and if we're not in communion with God, that longing still exists, and we try to fill that with every thing we can to fill this soul satisfaction. But as Augustine once said, our souls will never be satisfied until they find our rest in God. We long to be in communion with God because it fulfills us, it completes us. It's how we are created. But here's the deal, as you all know, we live very busy lives, don't we? And we say, man, our life is so busy. And when it comes to just sitting down and opening a Bible and just praying and taking a few minutes to read his word, I just don't know if I have time for that. And the danger with that kind of thinking, the danger with that kind of scenario is that we reduce communion with God to a task to be accomplished versus a relationship that will give us life. We reduce it to this checklist to check off our list versus a relationship with him where we are given life and fulfilled. You see, we have to go into this understanding where we realize that deep personal relationships are not things to be accomplished. They're more about being than they are about doing. And when we say we don't have time or we can't fit it into our schedule, what we're saying is we don't want to relate to God. And we have to be careful because our time with God, though we do certain things and there's tasks we can do to help relate, 
We have to always keep in mind that our time with God is communion with Him. It's time spent with Him where we can come and we can hear from Him and we can share our heart with Him and we can know Him and we can sense His love. And as we do that, His love is being made complete within us. You see, it's not this task to check off. God is a true, living, real person. He's not this impersonal force. And when we reduced getting to know him to a checklist, we misunderstand and cheapen communion. Not only that, but we easily find other things to fill the time. To have what's called a quiet time or a devotional time or a time with God, whatever you want to call it, is a good thing. But we have to remember the purpose of that is to be in relationship with God or to commune with God. And here's the deal. You and I desperately need this. We desperately need to be in communion with God. Communion with God is the deep need of every human heart. And we need to acknowledge that communion with God is how we were made to function. It's how we were made to live. Communion with God is ultimately about a very present relationship with God Almighty. And when we are in present relationship with God Almighty, then we live the lives that He intended us to live. We live the ways He intended us to live. And apart from Him, we miss out. We're in this hollow shell where we create all these masks and we create all these things generated by insecurities. Because we're not secure in who he is and who we are in him. So being with God and living your life out, John gives us this picture in this opening verses when he says that we are to remain in God and he in us and then we'll be remaining in his love. So what happens when we commune? Well, then we get to the second word, complete. When we we commune with God, his love, it says, is made complete in us. What does that mean? Some translations uh, say that his love is perfected in us. And even this translation later, it talks about perfect love. And I like our translation of this, that it's made complete. Because when you and I hear the word perfect, we get this idea in our head of without fault. Like perfect, flawless, without any kind of fault. And that's not the idea here. Complete love is a love that we grow into. Love being complete or perfected does not mean without fault. It means God's love is being made whole within us. God's love is being made mature within us. When you commune with God, you are entering a process where his love is growing and maturing inside of you. It's the state of mind of a Christian that finds themselves in this place when they commune with God. Is God's love complete without flaw in Christians? No. God's love is being made whole within them. It's being matured with them. And one day when he comes back, it will be perfected. But until that time, as we commune with God, his love is maturing us and maturing inside of us. And when you spend time with God, that's what happens. When you spend time with God in communion with him, he makes it so that his love is being whole within the deepest part of your soul. And it results in transformation. You see, that's why communion is so vital. So that we get to the complete. Communion leads to love being made complete in us. So then John now says, once you get that, communion complete, here's how you know it's happening. Now he gives us two things that we can look at practically that says, here's how you know it's happening. Let's look at verses 17 
and 18. In this, love is made complete with us so that we have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. John says complete love lived out is lived out in a way that we could have confidence on the day of judgment, that we can know that when God comes and Jesus returns to judgment, we can have confidence in who he is. He says, this is how you know this love is being made complete in you. It's maturing in you. That when you think about Jesus Christ coming again, which he will, to judge the world, you don't have to fear that. You can have confidence in that. And if you get to that spot, then you know his love is being made complete in you. That's what he's saying. Now, judgment is unpopular today. We don't like to talk about judgment, but you know what? When John wrote this letter around 90 A.D. to that church, it was unpopular then too. They didn't want to hear about it either. No human being likes to hear about judgment because human beings, no matter what era they live in, do have a resistance to the idea that someday we're going to have to give account for our lives before a holy God. We don't like that thought. We want to resist that thought. We want to forget that. We want to just say, maybe that just won't happen. Let's just not talk about it. And we fill our lives with all sorts of stuff so we don't have to remember that. But Jesus will come. And when he talks about here the day of judgment, he's not calling it a day of judgment because it's a 24-hour period because it's not. He's going to do all sorts of things in that time of judgment. It's going to be a series of judgments. As the Bible says he's going to judge lots of things during that time. Revelation 11 and 13 says there's going to be these two beasts, metaphorically they call them, two, that are symbols that are going to rise up. He's going to judge them because of their opposition to God. He said he's going to judge nations who resist God. And nations, again, isn't geographic boundaries, but it's people groups and ethnic groups. He's going to judge those who resist God. He said he's going to judge the nation of Israel. He's going to judge false prophets. He's going to judge individuals. Every human being will be judged, it says in Revelation, in what's called the great white throne judgment. And the reason it's not called a day because of a 24-hour period. It's not a 24-hour period, but the reason he calls it a day, judge, this day of judgment, is because it is going to happen. It is on God's calendar. And just like any day and time of history that has already taken place, there will come a day where God is going to return in the form of Jesus Christ, and he is going to judge. You see, in Advent, we talk about the coming of God. That's what Advent means, arrival or coming. And we talk about when the first Advent, when God came in the form of an infant. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. But in Advent, we also celebrate the second Advent, that God is going to come again. That Jesus now is going to come the second time, not as an infant, but as King of kings and Lord of lords. And in that point, he's going to judge. And when he judge, he's going to bring his justice to the entire world. And so when you think about the every single thought, every single word, every single action done by you and me and every human being coming now under the judgment of God, a normal human reaction is to have fear. You should have fear. But what John is saying is when you give your life to Jesus Christ, an amazing thing happens. 
Jesus Christ takes your sins that he died for on the cross, he pays the penalty for that, and then his righteousness is now applied to you. And as you commune with God and his love gets more and more complete and gets more and more mature in you, you realize that you are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so when that judgment time comes and you are judged before God, instead of you standing with your own record and your own merits, you stand before Jesus Christ's righteousness covering you. That's how you stand before a holy God. And when he looks at the believer, the one who's given their lives to Jesus Christ, who have lived for him and followed him, he sees the righteousness of his son. And that's the only way you're going to make it past that judgment is to place your faith and trust and relationship in Jesus Christ alone, not in your own things. And so what John is saying is when love is being made complete in you, he's bringing you more and more closer to the truth of what happened to your soul when you gave your life to Jesus Christ. And when you know that, you get this assurance that I can stand before the judgment, not because of what I've done, not because of that my good will outweigh my bad, but I can stand before that judgment time solely because of what Jesus Christ did alone for me on the cross. And that's an amazing thing. So he says you can stand in judgment. When you think of judgment, you can think of it doing it without fear because of who Jesus is. Now, anytime judgment is brought up, I get three quick questions usually asked, so I want to answer those really quick. First of all, um, what's going to happen at this judgment? Um, well, non-Christians will be judged and condemned, and then Christians will also be judged. But people say, so if we're judged and we're Christians, we have the righteousness of God, right? So we're, then we're good, right? Well, yes, you are in terms of salvation, uh, are you going to go to heaven or hell? You stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you have given your life to him, if you followed him, if you trust in him alone and what he's done on the cross, then yes, you will have that righteousness and you'll go to heaven. That's why we talk about the gospel all the time. Because if you don't have that, then the opposite is true. You'll be separated from a holy God. And so we have to talk about those things and give you opportunity to turn your life to Jesus, to give your life to him. That's what we're about here, the gospel message, so you hear that. But then people will say, so if that happens and we're covered, then why are Christians still going to be judged? Well, at that great white throne judgment, there is the judgment of individuals. Will they go to heaven or will they be separated from God in hell? But then also for those who are Christians, there's another judgment. It's about what have you done with your life since you became a Christian? What are the things you have done? There's going to be a judgment about the works that you've done post-salvation, and that's not a heaven or hell judgment. That's a reward in heaven judgment. You get judged first about whether you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. If you are, then you are in heaven. But then all those people in that spot, Jesus has a judgment of what have you done since then? And then based off of what you've done, there will be rewards in heaven that you'll have. So when people hear that we're going to be judged, sometimes they think, well, I don't have to worry about that because Jesus covered me. And that's in one sense true in terms of salvation. You keep putting your trust in Jesus. But in another sense, there's another judgment of what have you done since you've given your life to Jesus Christ. And that's why we have to keep maturing and growing that as well. The second thing is when people hear perfect love cast out fear, they think, okay, so I'm never supposed to be afraid. But if I am afraid, then I must not have perfect love. But we have to look at the context of this. When John's talking about perfect love casting out fear, first of all, remember, it's our definition of being made complete within you. 
But the context is he's talking about perfect love casting out fear in the terror of the final judgment and, and eternal punishment. So that's what he's talking about here. We have to look at that in context. We are people being made in process over time. And the rewards, uh, the remnants of fear may coexist in our hearts, but that's why we continue to commune with him so that that complete love will cast out that fear progressively in our lives. Finally, when we say that fear is cast out progressively and one day is perfected, it doesn't mean that we don't have a fear in terms of the power and the awe of who God is. There's a difference between the fear of the Lord and the fear of judgment. And John is talking about the fear of judgment here, but he's not one iota saying that we're never supposed to have this awe and this reverence and this fear towards a holy God. Bible says otherwise of that. We have to interpret the Bible with the Bible. And so as we approach God, we will always have this awe and fear of who he is. And it's a holy fear. It's a righteous fear. It's a fear of awe and respect before him. And that should always remain. So communion makes complete how you know it's going to happen. He says, well, when you think about judgment, you'll have this fear or replaced by this ongoing love, knowing that what Jesus Christ did on the cross covers you. Now he gives a second thing that can help us know that it's happening in our lives. Verses 19 to 21. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Real love is seen and measured in how we love other people. John immediately jumps to the idea that you cannot separate your love for God and your love for other people. You see, some people have this idea that I can love God vertically and be okay. Then it doesn't matter how I treat people horizontally. And what John is saying is if there's a problem with you loving people horizontally and people in your life around you, if you have issues with that, then there will always be an issue with you and God and the love he has. The two are inseparable. People say, I love Jesus. I'm good with Jesus. It's the church I don't love and don't care about. What John says is that that's not a biblical statement. In fact, John says, if you say that, you are a liar. He says, if you say, I love Jesus, and I'm all about Jesus, but I don't like other people, I don't love the people in the church, he's saying that you're a liar because you can't love Jesus if you don't love his church, is what he's saying. You can't love Jesus and love God fully unless you love the people that he created who are around him. If you attempt to separate these things, then you're not living in truth, is what he's saying. And John's reasoning is interesting. He's saying that there's always those people who will shout from the mountaintop how much they love God, but then they treat people like garbage. And he says you can't do that. John calls those people liars. He doesn't even get politically correct or even beats behind the bush. He just flat out says they're liars if they say that. And his reasoning is interesting. He says that it's easier to love people than it is to love God. And so if you're not loving people that you can see and interact with, then how do you expect to say that you're going to love God? 
Now, we as human beings, we flip that around and we don't always agree with that. We say, well, no, 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 no. It's easy for me to love God because God is perfect and he loves me, does all these great things for me. The people around me are the ones that are causing my life to be miserable so I don't have to love them. But him and I are good, but all these people around me aren't. And he's saying, no, that's not what the Bible says. This passage says the exact opposite. No matter how we think or feel, God's word is clear. We are kidding ourselves if we think we can love God vertically if we don't love the people around us horizontally. Unless we love others around us, there's no way we can love God the way we should. With that said, there's an amazing, hopeful truth that is huge in this. I once had a Bible study, a uh, study Bible when I was younger, and I was looking at it, and it was called a Life Application Study Bible. And I read a chapter about the love of God, and I said, you know, I just want to make that happen in my life. How do I do that? And I looked down at the little application note, and it said, love God more. And I was like, ah, okay, but how do I do that? That's seriously what you're going to tell me here? Just love God more? I could have figured that out. But I'm thinking, how do I love God more? And the amazing thing is John right here is going to tell us how we can love God more. There are many who recognize that they don't love God like they should. And they wonder, how can I love him more? They say, I can't see God. He seems so far away. But how do I love him more? And based off of these verses that John gives us, a Christian learns to love God more by loving those around them. What he's saying is transformative. If you begin to love those around you, then you will be, in essence, loving God more, and your heart will be more open to the things of God, and you'll be, your love, his love will be made more complete in you as you love others around you. It's by practicing consistently a real self-sacrificing sacrificing love for other people that we learn to love God. He sacrificed himself for us. Loving others doesn't replace loving God. It supplements the love of God through Jesus practically. Love is the most important thing in the Christian life. Without love, there's no true demonstration of the life of Jesus within us. Jesus himself made love the chief of all commandments. He wrote this in Matthew 22, verse 40. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul and your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he laid out this in Matthew twenty-two forty. 40. He said, all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. They all rest on love. What we are doing here today, the fourth Sunday of Advent, when we're teaching and proclaiming and recognizing and remembering and practicing that Jesus Christ came to earth in the form of the human being, as a human being, we are doing that so that we remind ourselves and that people hear of the incarnation of Jesus coming to earth so they'll learn of the resurrection of Jesus rising from the dead, that they might believe in him and give their life to him. Why? So that they would love God with all their hearts and that they would love other people. You see, that's what this is all about. The devil is one who always tries to divide people and tear people apart. But the Lord Jesus Christ is one who draws people in to relationship with the Father, and he draws people in to the relationship with one another. And love is the key factor. Romans 12, 9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. 
detest evil, cling to what is good. And then it says, love one another deeply. Outdo one another in showing honor to each other. What a great picture. You want to know how to love God more? Outdo one another in showing honor, respect to one another. Outdo each other. There's a connection there. Well, if any of this is grabbing your attention or sitting well with you, I'd like to have us respond as I close in three main ways. First of all, I want you to consider making a commitment to love God by intentionally loving other people. Think through how you can do some kind of act of love. Maybe it's a word of encouragement or an act of service or a gift or a conversation where you just tell someone, I love you. How can you demonstrate that more? Proactively think about ways that you can put others' needs above yourself. That's our definition of love. Second, if there's somebody that has wronged you, if there's somebody that has hurt you deeply and you have never forgiven them, I encourage you to forgive that person. Now you're saying, Dan, you have no idea what this person did to me. And you're right, I have no idea what that person did. I don't feel like forgiving them. You know, I understand that, but here's the deal. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And there's times where I'm hurt and times that things happen to me in my life, in my past, that were very difficult. And I had to go back there. And you know what I did with the help of God? I just said, God, you know, I got real, real honest with God. And I said, God, I do not want to forgive this person for what they did to me. Do you understand the depth and the level, the heart, the abuse that happened? I don't want to let, I do not feel like forgiving that person. But God, because of what your word says, because of what you instruct me to do here, not because I feel like it, but because it's an act of my will, I choose to forgive that person. I'm not feeling it. I don't like to feel it. I'm not going to feel it. But because you're asking me to, out of an act of my will, I choose to forgive that person. And you know what happens usually? The feelings of forgiveness come after that, not before. But if you wait until you feel like forgiving, you're going to mess out. Because here's the deal. When you refuse to forgive somebody, they live their life just fine. It holds you in bondage. It holds you in prison. And so I encourage you, as an act of love to this person, to God and yourself, choose to forgive. Say, God, as an act of my will, I choose to forgive and release this person. And you don't have to go up to them and say, you know what, you did really, really hurt me, so I want to let you know, guess what, good news, I forgive you. That doesn't help, right? There may be a time where you can voice that forgiveness, but you don't even have to do that. Just go before God. Let this be a heart thing between you, God, and Choose to forgive them. Release them. And you know what I would encourage you to do? As you walk through this life, people are going to disappoint and hurt you all the time. Make a regular habit of that. God, I choose to forgive that person. God, I forgive them. God, I choose to forgive them. Release that because it keeps you in bondage when you don't. And finally, when it comes to loving others or forgiving, I hope you know this, you can't do that on your own. There's no way you can do that without the power of God in your life. Because we are unwilling, stubborn, rebellious people. And God knows that about us. That's why he came to change that in us. Listen to this devotion by Paul David Tripp. It says, We are often unwilling to do what God says if it doesn't make sense to us. 
We are often unwilling to inconvenience ourselves for the needs of someone else. We are regularly unwilling to wait. We are often unwilling to be open and honest. We're too often unwilling to consider the loving rebuke of a friend. We struggle to be willing to say no to our own wrong thoughts or desires. We often struggle to be willing to answer God's call to walk with Him. Often we are unwilling to admit that we are wrong. Too often we struggle to serve willingly and to give generously. Isn't that true of us? So here's, the Christmas, here's what the Christmas story is all about. A willing Savior is born to rescue unwilling people from themselves because there's no other way. Jesus was willing to leave the splendor of heaven to come to this broken and groaning world. He was willing to take on human flesh with all of its frailty. He was willing to endure birth in a stable. He was willing to go through the dependency of childhood. He was willing to expose himself to all the hardships of life in this fallen world. He was willing to submit to his own law. He was willing to do his father's will at every single point. He was willing to serve when he deserved to be served. He was willing to be willing to preach a message that would cause him personal harm. He was willing to go to suffer public mockery. He was willing to endure physical torture. He was willing to go through the pain of his father's rejection. He was willing to die, and he was willing to rise and ascend and be our constant advocate and counselor. Jesus was willing. You see, it's not just the Christmas story, but it's the entire story of how we are saved. And it hinges on one thing, the internal willingness of Jesus Christ. The advent willingness of our Jesus is our guarantee that he continues to be willing to you today. And he remains willing to do everything necessary to feed to guide, sustain, and, and keep you until eternity is your final home. Isn't that an amazing picture of what Jesus is all about? Let's pray that that gets inside of our hearts right now. Oh, Jesus, we just thank you so much for your willingness to come to a rebellious, unwilling people And I thank you that you put love in our hearts and you brought this thing called love to the forefront. And as we commune with you, as we spend time with you, that love gets more and more real and we can understand it more and it becomes more and more complete and it lives out in so many different ways. And so, Lord, I just ask that you'd give us a hunger to be with you Give us a thirst to be with you. Discipline doesn't always work. We need a hunger and a thirst. We need a yearning and a desire. And God, you've called us to be with you. That's how we are meant to function. But sometimes we just look at other things. And so you reorder our desires of our heart by the power of your spirit. Will you give us this hunger and this thirst that would pull us into the point where it's not, yeah, I have to do this because my and check it off my list, but it's like the first thing I want to do is be with my God. Lord, will you transform our hearts to that place? We give them to you now and ask that you do that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.